0: Would you for a Bible and open it to the book of Genesis where we're going to be this morning. I'm excited we are our, into our second week in this new sermon series, mere creation. If you were here last week you'd know about this if you're joining us for the first time this morning, another warm welcome to you, delighted that you're here. We are looking on the, the, these weekends in June, these Sundays in June at the book of Genesis chapter 1 and thinking about the doctrine of creation what Christians, ought to believe about God and the world that He's created and humanity's purpose and role within creation. And so this morning I want to read for us the whole of chapter 1 of the book of Genesis. So if you made your way there in your Bible, can I invite you now to stand and let me read this passage for us. Majestic passage of Scripture. The way the whole story of the Bible begins with these... Powerful, powerful words from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Let me read this for us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, and each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas. Now let the birds multiply on the earth. There was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is God's Word. Maybe be seated. So last week, because we kicked off the sermon series on mere creation, last week we looked at really just verse 1 and 2 of the passage I've just read of Genesis chapter 1, and we thought about and talked about how creation is not a given, though it often feels like a given when you stub your toe on the sidewalk, but creation is not a given that has always been here and always will be here. Creation is rather a gift. It's an o- expression of the overflow of God's own generosity and joy and love. Creation is a gift, not a given. That was the last week's message from Genesis chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2. This week, as I told you last week, we were going to look at the goodness of creation, from the gift of creation to the goodness of creation. We're going to dive into Genesis chapter 1 and take a look at that little refrain which you heard through Genesis chapter 1. It's used six times, and it was good, and it was good, and God saw that it was good. We were going to look this morning. At the goodness of creation and I keep saying we were going to look at the goodness of creation because there's been a slight change of plans sometimes happens in the labor of preaching and teaching it's not the first time I've had a change of plans midweek as I've been preparing in a sermon series let me explain to you what happened what happened was I started preparing this week this sermon on the goodness of creation diving into Genesis chapter 1 and wrestling with what the meaning of this and it was good little phrase is and begin developing the message for the sermon and all of the rest of it. But then I thought, you know, I should probably begin with a few introductory comments to sort of orient us to what is in many ways a controversial passage, how to read Genesis chapter 1. Because even in this room this morning, there are people that read this book and read this chapter differently. And so I can't just dive right into a sermon without making some introductory comments, just a few introductory comments. Well, you know how this goes. I start developing what these few introductory comments are, and lo and behold, a couple hours later, I've got another sermon sitting here in front of me. And then I start thinking, well, what do I do? Do I? i have done this before. I, 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 I preach two sermons disguised as one sermon... Right, And then all of us are going to miss the barbecue after church and the second service. So, so I, I, I'm not going to do that this morning. I'm not going to disguise two sermons as one sermon. The other thought was I could preach two half-sermons as one sermon, right? But that's inadequate on both fronts. I won't do justice to the introductory comments, and I won't do justice to the And it was good stuff either. So I didn't want to do two half-sermons together as one sermon. So I've chosen instead to give you the introductory comments this morning as a single sermon, and then next week we will come back to, and it was good, and the teaching of Genesis chapter 1 on the goodness of creation. And so this morning, you will see, did you see in your worship bulletin, I've given the title to the sermon, not the goodness of creation, but check it out, 10 things almost every Christian can agree on. (laughs) What am I trying to do with this morning's message? I'm trying, you will remember from last week, if you were here, the part of the goal of this mere creation sermon series is to help Christians find common ground, things we can agree on, in the midst of what is often a battleground for Christians, the doctrine of creation and the teaching of Genesis. Christians will often get highly animated and even agitated with one another over the doctrine of creation and how to read Genesis chapter 1. And so we often find when we have these kind of conversations, and I heard from a couple of folks about interesting small group conversations they had last week with some fireworks and some sparks that were flying, right? What we want to do is find our way onto some common ground and some solid ground and some higher ground rather than let this issue become battleground. And so what I'm giving you this morning are 10 things almost every Christian can agree on about, I believe, the doctrine of creation and how to approach Genesis chapter 1. Because let's face it, y'all, perhaps you don't need a reminder. Perhaps some of you do need to, to, to recognize this, acknowledge this. There are very real differences of opinion among Christians, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, Calvary-attending Christians. There are very real differences of opinion on how Christians ought to approach Genesis chapter 1 and the doctrine of creation, in particular, science and how science integrates with all of that. There are some in our body, there are some, of course, in evangelical Christianity at large that believe that this whole world and creation is of very recent origin, several thousand years ago. There are others who believe that God created everything we see around us many billions of years ago. There are some in the pews this morning who believe God created human beings literally out of the dust of the earth. There are others sitting in the pews perhaps right next to you this morning who believe God used some kind of evolutionary mechanisms to create human beings over millions of years. Very real differences. Among Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians, how do we deal with those differences? One way to do it is you have a mudsling. Another way to do it is you say, everyone has to think just so. Another way to do it, which is a preferred method for many, is we just don't talk about it. It is a don't ask, don't tell policy because we don't want people to get upset or leave the church or get in a fight in small groups. None of those, in my judgment, are an adequate way to handle a controversial topic, but rather to deal with it as a family, candidly and biblically and theologically, to grant permission to the body of Christ to begin engaging one another with some guideposts to help in navigating what can be a very dicey and controversial topic. And so that's what I've tried to give you this morning. Ten things almost, almost every Christian can agree on about the doctrine of creation and the teaching of Genesis chapter 1. Now, ten things, right? I mean, if I even spend four minutes on all these ten things, we really are going to miss lunch. So I'm going to promise to be expeditious in the way we work our way through these 10 things. But remember, these are guideposts. So this is a great morning for you if you're not a note taker to become a note taker. I would encourage you to write these 10 things down, to talk about them over a burger in the parking lot. You're going to have perhaps a small group conversation later on. You're going to talk to a colleague or a friend at work tomorrow. You're going to email your parents about the content of this. Whatever it is, find a way to capture the content and dive Dialogue with someone about this material, preferably someone who disagrees with you, and practice what it means to live and walk in charity and humility, finding common ground, not degenerating into battleground. And so I should also say, though, this morning's message is going to be less Exegetical and textual, that will be next week when we come back to Genesis 1 and get into the specifics of the text. This morning is going to be a little bit more the forest, not the trees. It's going to be less exegetical and it's going to be, you might say, more theological or even, you might say, more hermeneutical and philosophical, how to think about approaching the Bible, not the specifics of the Bible, but how to even think about approaching the Bible philosophically, theologically, and hermeneutically. That's how to read and understand the Bible. And so this morning, going to have more points in the message than I normally do. It's going to have 10, not one, or a couple. There are going to be less stories, less illustrations. I will probably not raise my voice. It will have a bit more of a lecturey sermon kind of a feel. I know that's not everybody's learning style. I'm fully aware of that. In fact, I brought with me, I might even get it out some point during the sermon. You know one of these things? I mean, this is a morning for fidget spinners. If you've got one in a purse or a pocket, you might want to get this thing out. If you see me spinning it, you'll understand why as we make our way through these ten points. Ten points, ten things I think almost every Christian can agree on. This is, y'all, I'm giving you straight up common ground, I believe, for us as a congregation. And we are a very, very diverse congregation on, not least, issues of the doctrine of creation and how to approach Genesis chapter 1. So here we go. You ready? Ready to dive in? You ready for number one? Number one thing I think we can all agree on, almost all of us, the doctrine of creation is central to the Christian faith. The doctrine of creation is central to the Christian faith. That's why I think it is, and people get, Christians get animated about the doctrine of creation and how to read Genesis chapter 1. We recognize, we kind of sense that this is important stuff has to do with God and who God is and the nature of God and the nature of the created world and its purpose and the nature of humanity and where we came from and what our destiny and all of that is. We recognize in our gut this is pretty important stuff, this doctrine of creation. Not everything in the Christian faith is of equal importance. Some doctrines can be moved out to the periphery of the Christian faith. They're still true, but they're not central. Angelology, doctrines and teachings about angels, right? And how many millions you can get on the top of the pin of a needle, right? Or or eschatology, teaching about the last things, and are you mid or post or pre-tribulational rapture and this kind of a stuff. Some of these doctrines of the Christian faith are more peripheral doctrines, they're not central. The doctrine of creation is like the doctrine of God, it's like the doctrine of salvation. It is central, I think, to the Christian faith. It is why we are at times animated about this teaching. We recognize just how significant the doctrine of creation is. And so, by the way, it is no wasted time to grapple with and think about these things. One approach may be, well, let's just not talk about it. It's controversial. Let's not talk about it. But that is majorly short-sighted in my view because we're missing out on a central teaching of the Bible. This stuff is in Genesis chapter 1 for a very good reason. The whole unfolding of the rest of the Bible depends upon how we approach and the meaning and the purpose of Genesis chapter 1. And so, point number one, I think we all can agree on, or almost all of us, the doctrine of creation is central to the Christian faith. It's not peripheral or tangential, it's central. Number two, the Bible, both the Old and New Testaments, the Bible is the inspired Word of God and is therefore without error in all that it teaches. The Bible is the Word of God, inspired Word of God and it is without error. I'm talking about verbal, plenary, verbal inspiration, and I'm talking about the doctrine of inerrancy. This is what is, I think, true of the Bible, and I think most, if not all of us, can agree on this about the Word of God this morning in the room. The punchline of this, though, is this, that whenever the, whatever the Bible teaches, God teaches. Whatever the Bible teaches, God teaches. And so listen, it's not a viable option to say, yes, I know the Bible teaches that, but I just don't buy it. Or I know that's what God is saying, but I'm just not believing it. That's not really a viable option for a Bible-loving and to submitting to the Bible kind of a Christian. And so, as it relates with the book of Genesis, as it relates to Genesis chapter 1, as it relates to the Bible's teaching on where we came from, the nature of the world, all the rest of it, it is not an option, I don't think, to say something like this, I know the Bible teaches that, but the Bible's just wrong. It's been proven to be wrong. I don't think that's an option. Now, in saying that, we also want to allow for something really important, which is this. That God communicates and teaches through His Word by using human authors. Yes, the Word of God is God-breathed, but God-breathed and inspired men to write the Bible in their own cultural context with their own cultural conventions. God didn't drop the Bible like the Quran, the teaching of Islam and the Quran, didn't just drop it out of the sky on tablets. The thing was developed and written down over many, many centuries in contexts and cultures not our own. God inspires and people write in light of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and that is what we call Scripture. What does that mean? It means this, super important, y'all, super important, it means this, that when we read the Bible, what we are after is the intention of the human author. That's what we're after. So didn't God write the Bible say, yes, through the intention of human author? So if you want to know what God thinks, find out what the author of Genesis or Ruth or Romans thinks God has inscripturated His teaching, His intention, in the human author's teaching and intention. And so the first question to ask with regard to Genesis chapter 1 is this, what did the author of this passage intend to teach? When we find that, we find what God is intending to teach. The question is not... What would we like the author to have said, or what do most people think the author has said, but what did the author say? The Bible is the Word of God, and it is without error. We are after what it teaches, God teaches, and we are after the intention of human authors when we approach Genesis and the other writings of Scripture. That is point number two. Point number three, I think another piece of common ground we can all agree on is this, you're going to need to hear this carefully, listen, Genesis 1, this chapter, really Genesis 1 through 11, let's just say Genesis 1, is historical in nature, rich in literary artistry and theological in purpose. It's historical in nature. That is, what we have here in Genesis chapter 1 is not contra many people's thinking. It is not ancient mythology or folklore or folk tale or literary figures that have deeper spiritual meaning but aren't real. It's not that. The genre of Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis 1 through 11, I think, clearly suggests that what is being referred to here in Genesis 1 are real events in a real past. It is historical in nature. And yet at the same time, listen, at the same time, it is clearly rich in literary artistry. I trust you heard that as I read Genesis chapter 1 this is not the way a newspaper reporter would write down the events or a science test textbook Genesis chapter 1 is rich in literary artistry it is obvious from reading it the structuring of the days the repetition of phrases and language we won't go into all of that today there'll be more of that next Sunday but it is rich in literary artistry That's very obvious from just reading it. It's historical in nature. It's rich in literary artistry. And thirdly, it is theological in purpose. The point of Genesis 1, of course, is not to teach us about supernovas or greenhouse gases or horticulture and seeds and all that. That is obviously not the point of Genesis chapter 1. Rather, Genesis chapter 1 is designed to teach us ultimately about God, about the world He's made, its purpose, It's design and humanity's place in that world and humanity's place in the purposes of God. It is theological in purpose. Point three, then, is this. Let me repeat it. Genesis 1 is historical in nature, real events in a real past, rich in literary artistry, and theological in purpose. Point number four, piece of ground number four. How are we doing? we doing all right? Anybody need to borrow my fidget spinner? All right, all right. Point number four, we're going to press on. You're going to like this one. God, point number four, God and every Christian I think can realize, God creates and sustains everything. God creates and sustains everything. This means, I'm going to like this, I hope, (laughs) This means God is as involved in natural processes, natural processes, the kind of stuff we see going on all the time in nature. He's as involved in all of that as he is in supernatural events. God is just as involved in the sun rising and setting as he is in the parting of the Red Sea. One event may be a sign and a wonder with special significance in that moment, but it's not as though God is like wound up, created the earth, and then stepped back from all the natural processes and only sort of shows up and does stuff every once in a while. We got some of that in the Bible. That's not a biblical way of viewing the world. You realize that every natural process from grass growing to light shining, God is sustaining all of it as the creator. Do not be essentially atheistic in the way you view the natural world. Do not think God is uninvolved. In cell divisions and photosynthesis or condensation, God is superintending, God is sovereign in, God is sustaining, God is causing all of it. We already sang about this lovely theme, biblical theme, and this is my father's world. This is my father's world. He shines in all that's fair. In the rustling grass, I hear him pass, he speaks to me everywhere. God is sovereign and sustaining every process everything in nature, not just supernatural events, but natural processes as well. Listen to Psalm, will you listen to Psalm 104? Psalm 104, an extended celebration of the doctrine of creation, right? By the way, in the Bible, you have teaching about the creation, not just in Genesis chapter 1, but lots of other places, Psalm 104 is one of the most spectacular celebrations Of God as the Creator anywhere in the Bible. Psalm 104, verse 14, the psalmist says this, you'll love this, you, God, cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate. The grass is long in your front yard, you know how it got that way? God. God causes grass to grow. When was the last time any of us thought, like, thank God for all of His work in causing grass to grow? Amazing condensation, and photosynthesis, and all of these natural processes, the psalmist celebrates this. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that they may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man, man's heart. Verse 19, he, God, made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. I love that. It is like God putting the sun to bed at night. That's what the psalmist is talking about. You know, does, does anybody know that children's book, Goodnight Moon? I mean, we read that. I mean, we, we wore a hole in that book. We read that book so many times to our kids. God puts the sun to bed at night. It's not just flying around in terms of gravity and orbits and space-time continuum and all that fancy stuff, unassisted by God. We don't want to be atheists in the way we view the natural world. God's sustaining the natural, natural processes just as much as the supernatural processes. I love verse 20. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. Who feeds Lions. God does. God does. Verse 27, these all look to you to give them their food and due season. God, these all look to you. God is at work in everything. Psalm 19, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. Or as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 1, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that he has made. This creation provides unmistakable evidence of God's handiwork. God creates and sustains everything. He's as much involved in natural processes as He is in supernatural events. That's common ground number four. Here's common ground number five. And here's a dicey little common ground place, right? Common ground number five is this. Adam and Eve were real persons in a real past. Adam and Eve were real persons in a real past. Did anyone catch the national and international news about the findings that were published in the the famous journal called Science This Week, the fossil discovery that happened in Morocco a little while ago that moves the date back for the Origin or the advent of humanity, according to the scientists and the paleontologists, moves the origin of humanity on the scene from about 200,000 years ago, so the scientists will say, another 100,000 years earlier to 300,000 years ago in light of the dating of these fossils. And now, not just in East Africa, and Ethiopia, right, which is the the basket of civilization, as it's often been called, but now in Morocco as well, kind of causing scientists to reevaluate all of this. Why do I share that with you? I share that with you for this simple reason, not to sort of endorse that one way or the other, but simply to say this, this kind of evidence scientifically that keeps coming out literally each and every week leaves many, many both outside the church, of course, but then even within the church having a hard time still affirming Adam and Eve as real persons. What I want to say, what I think Christians need to still affirm as a piece of common ground is this, that Adam and Eve were real persons in a real past. Not literary figures, but actual persons. How they connect to the rest of what scientists are finding, that's a question for another day. But biblically speaking and theologically, it seems pretty clear that Adam and Eve are real persons, as the Bible presents them, who really plunged human beings into the state of sin we now find ourselves in and set up the way for redemption through Jesus Christ. Adam and Eve were real persons in a real past, point number five. Point number six, common ground number six, is this. Human beings are created in the image of God and thus are unique among God's creatures. I suspect, I'm sure you're aware that so much of contemporary science and social sciences is moving and pushing for us as human beings to flatten out our distinctiveness within creation. So that we are in a very close connection and continuity with the rest of animal kind. No longer radically unique and distinct and special, but really just a little bit more sophisticated primate. That's the move of almost all of contemporary science and contemporary thinking. If you go into a bookstore, pick up any book, you'll see this sort of a vision. And there's understandable reasons why our society is moving in this direction. For example, unraveling human DNA, unraveling chimpanzee DNA, and finding there is a 96% overlap between the DNAs of chimpanzees and human beings. That's pretty remarkable stuff. It may or it may not be evidence, listen to me, of common ancestry it may it may not regardless listen from a biblical perspective we still have to insist I think that human beings possess a special dignity within God's creation I don't know how you could read Genesis chapter 1 even with common ground with other Christians and not come to the conclusion that when he gets to verse 26 and verse 27, something happens and it's unique and it's significant and it's the creation of human beings in the image of God. Human beings are created in the image of God and thus are unique among God's creatures. Or as Psalm chapter 8 puts it, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and with honor. Humanity is unique in the creation. Genesis 1, I think, makes that painfully obvious. Humanity is the crown of creation and distinct among all other creatures. Number seven. How are we doing? We all right? I'm doing a little checking. Should we stand and do some jumping jacks? All right, keep plowing on. Number seven. We're almost there. Come on, number seven. This is super important, and if you are a student, if you're junior high, high school, college, grad school, I want you to hear this one. Super, super important. Getting number seven wrong is what has shipwrecked the faith of many an evangelical Christian who goes off to university. Number seven. There is no final conflict between the Bible rightly understood and the facts of nature rightly understood. There is no final conflict between the Bible rightly understood and the facts of nature rightly understood. Christians for centuries have used, literally for centuries, have used the analogy of God's two books, that God has written two books, One we call the Bible, the other we call nature, we call nature. God has written both, that is, God has designed and created both. They have the same author ultimately, and so they do not finally, they do not ultimately contradict one another, but when all is understood, all the facts are out on the table, and we all rightly understand both God's Word and God's world, there will be no final conflict. This is hugely important, as I said, for students for the following reason. Christians, Christian students should approach, listen to I me, mean, Christian students in high school and college, you're in your biology class, your paleontology class, your or whatever it might be, or adults for that matter, or out of school, but thinking students in particular, you ought to approach, listen, contemporary science with both interest and discernment, confident that all truth is indeed God's truth. You do not need to be scared of contemporary science, much less of God's world, as though it could be a defeater for the Bible and the Christian faith. Rather, moving into the study of contemporary science with confidence that all truth is God's truth. You may not, you, we may not be able to put God's word and God's world together in a way that's like, oh, that's lovely, perfect, all the problems are solved, thank you. The church has never been able to do that. You ever heard of Galileo? And <laughs> all of that brew, ha. 500 years ago? This has always been a struggle for the church. Always, it will probably always continue to be a struggle for the church. But to move into the study of contemporary science, not intimidated or antagonistic, but with interest, but not blind interest, discernment, knowing that God's Word and God's world will not ultimately contradict one another. So go into your biology class, go into your geology class, go into your paleontology class, and do not be nervous, Nellie, in the back row, but go in with a great sense of confidence the rock-solid reality of God's Word and how when all is known, all will be resolved. Even if you can't see it right now, it will all be ultimately resolved. It's point number seven. Point number eight. We only have three left. Point number eight. Common ground number eight is this. And this is maybe a little dicey as well, so this is why I put the almost in the parentheses in the sermon title, things almost almost every Christian can agree on. Here it is. The Christian faith is compatible, that is, it like fits, is compatible with different scientific theories of origins from young earth creationism, God created the world and everything we know several thousand years ago, or with certain types of, on the other hand, evolutionary creation, that God created everything we know and the biological complexity of the world many billions of years ago and over millions and millions of years. The Christian faith is compatible with different scientific theories of origins, but, catch this, but... It is incompatible with any view that rejects God as the creator and the sustainer of all things. The issue with the Christian faith is not how you put scientific theories together and spine fits and compatibility. The issue is when your scientific theories leave God out of the picture. That's the problem. An essentially atheistic approach to science is, of course, incompatible with the Christian faith. But here's the deal. Some Christians believe God created the world 7,000 years ago, and if God did it that way, then God did it that way. Others think the world is very old, and if so, then God made it old. And if human beings came from literal dust, then God did it. And if human beings share common ancestry with other species, then guess what? God did that as well. The Christian faith is compatible with different scientific theories of origins, but it is incompatible with anything that rejects God from the picture, of course, which is so much, as you know, of contemporary science Just does. That's why we have so much conflict with contemporary science so much of the time. That's number eight. Are you still tracking? Give me a nod. You're good. You there? Good. Number nine, we only have two more. Number nine. Christians have a responsibility to become well grounded in the Bible's teaching on creation. We have a responsibility to like know what the Bible teaches about creation, become conversant with theories about how all of this came about. And There's a responsibility as biblical, thoughtful Christians to become well-grounded in the Bible's teaching on creation to develop some convictions about this stuff. But we also have a responsibility, listen to this, to hold our views with humility, and to speak, and to be respectful of the convictions of others. (laughs) Develop your own convictions, but when you've got them, hold them humbly and interact with others respectfully, right? If you haven't even gotten started on figuring out some of those things, let me encourage you to do that. You might want some recommendations on some resources. be glad to share some thoughts with you. That would be great. But as you develop your views on these matters or as you already have your views, and you might be very passionate about your views, you might be, have studied a lot about your views to get them to where they are, don't use them as a club to bludgeon other Christians. And don't use them as a weapon to destroy or tear down the convictions of other Christians either. Let me encourage us all in the body of Christ to make sure we are always striving, as Paul says, to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, to make sure that we prioritize the gospel as of first importance, as the Bible puts it, not to let other things supplant the centrality of the gospel, to hold our convictions, but to hold them with humility and with respect. That's number nine. Number ten, finally, lastly, last but not least, here it is. Everything in creation, everything in creation finds its source and goal and meaning in Jesus Christ. Christ is the key. Creation exists ultimately for Christ. The Lamb was slain, check it out, before the foundations of the world, the Bible says. Take that in for a moment. The Lamb slain. Before creation existed, before Genesis 1-1, the Lamb, Jesus, in the mind of God, had already been slain. What does that teach us? That creation has as its goal, not itself, but Christ. Creation has a view already in Genesis chapter 1-1 To the cross, creation exists for Christ. He is its source. He is its goal. He is its meaning. And if you are unsure, listen to me, about what to make of all of this doctrine of creation stuff and hermeneutics and all this photosynthesis and all that kind of stuff. If you are unsure or insecure or uneasy about what to make of all of this, do this look to Christ. Let Him be your orienting center because He can make sense of everything for you and for me. You can trust Him and you can take Him at His word entirely. And so listen to how Scripture describes this Jesus from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. He, that is Jesus is the image of the invisible god the firstborn of all creation for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Check it out. All things were created through Him and for Him. He is both the source and the goal, but He's also the meaning, as Paul goes on to say in Colossians chapter 1. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Y'all, if you do not remember the previous nine points, do not forget this tenth and final point placed here before the burgers and the hot dogs very intentionally, placed here in the final position so you walk away with it. Christ is the key. He is the key for all things, not just salvation, but creation. He is the center, and in Him all things hold together. He's the first and the last. He is the faithful one. He is the creator who has become the creature to do what you and I, we could never do for ourselves, die for our sins and our forgiveness. Creation, you see, ultimately exists for Christ. Amen? Father, thank You for enabling, causing, allowing, I don't even know the right words, but all the fullness of deity, all of Your fullness to dwell bodily in the person of Jesus, our Savior. We can so easily get lost in the woods of all of this kind of stuff. But everything comes into beautiful focus when we remember that Christ is the key and so as we close this morning's service we just pause remember our Savior through him and for him all things exist and have been created even our very lives and that He as the Sovereign One sustains my voice, each of our heartbeats, the light, like the sound, everything about this creation, Jesus is holding it by the word of His power. May all of our heart's desires be ultimately directed to Christ. May all of our differences be resolved at the foot of the cross of Christ. May all of our anxieties be laid before him. May all of our questions be cheerfully and humbly and joyfully directed to our Savior Jesus, who is indeed the answer to each and every one of you. Father, we love you. We bless and praise you gift of one another, for the gift of our Savior. We pray these things in his name. Amen.